This is WexCast from the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University. For this episode, we revisit an engaging conversation between Central Ohio-based composer and sound artist Brian Hardetti and Elaine McMillian Sheldon, a former Wex Film Video Studio resident and the director of the beautiful new documentary, King Cole. The film is currently making its way across the country in a limited engagement. Together, they discuss the use of sound in King Cole, how coal is embedded in the culture of the central Appalachian town in which Macmillan grew up, how she wanted to take a different approach to the standard stories that come out of the region, and the unique sources of inspiration she took with her own tale. Let's listen. Please welcome up to the stage Brian Harnetti. We match. We planned it that way. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. This is a great crowd. Thank you guys. This really is awesome. Nice. Um, welcome to Columbus again. And uh, thank you for such a beautiful and inspiring film. Um, I saw it earlier this week and um, uh, was just as inspired watching it now. So I don't know where people normally start in these kind of questions, but I'm going to start with the thing that I love the most, which is sound. And um, the sound in this film and the music soundtrack, but also the soundscape of it all, was particularly affecting for me. And uh, I loved its drama. I loved how um, it was a mixture of natural sounds and found sounds and the music. And uh, there were a lot of very quick um, jumping back and forth, both in the sounds and in the video editing as well, that I thought was quite, quite amazing. And it struck me right from the beginning that um, this music was going to set a completely different tenor and tone um, from stereotypes. Um, and I want to know maybe more from you about how you thought about the music and the sound and also how it set, set that stage, or if it did, yeah. Yeah, um, well, first of all, I love old time music and the music we think of when we think of Appalachia. Oh yeah, so, me too, yeah. yeah. You know, I, um, I definitely always want to say that when I say I chose to go a different route because that's the music that I think of when I think of home, and that's my papa and my grandpa, who plays a couple notes on the fiddle there in the film. And But when I was writing in the early days, before this was even really a film, there was this line that kept coming back to me about the, like the king's drum and like mm -hmm. the beating of our lives being to this sort of constant thing that was fading into the distance. And so percussion was something I was listening to a lot when I was writing and thinking about, and um, I just decided to go full-on percussive score. And so I contacted Daniel Hart, who's a collaborator I've worked with before, a composer, and he knew a drummer who was in his band who had never done his full own sort of solo feature score, and he's like, I think he could do this, and boy did he. Like, he brought metal sheets, he brought, um, Wood, all kinds of different bamboo sticks. I mean, everything that he could 
make, they made the sound of growling on like bongo drums. But the idea was that we were trying to create these two, two ways of listening. There's the ambisonic recordings, which my um, sound producer, uh, Billy Wrasnick, he's been working with me for 10 years, and he has an incredible library of birds and water and trees and things in Appalachia, mostly in West Virginia, so we were calling upon those. So that's the first layer. Then there's the breath art, which is by um, a beatboxer and breath artist named Shodake Talaferro from Baltimore, who he's making the sound of crickets and wind and thunder with his sound. And so like the shot when you go from the mining underground to the trees and the fog, right? So that like breath shot, that's him, that's him breathing. And then there's the actual effects. So working with an incredible post sound team that some of the people that were on our post sound team also worked on everything everywhere all at once and brought a lot of the sort of methods of going to portals. So when we think about going from the coal mine to the forest, how does that sound sonically transport you? It was just really important that sound was just as intentional as images because I really wanted this film to be a journey for people that maybe wouldn't go to this place. Because for me, sound tells just as much of a story about the future and the past as much as it does as, as visuals do. So yeah, we knew sound would be important and then we got in there and I would give a lot of credit to my editor too who, you know, even in our rough cut stages, we had sounds in there. It wasn't something that we were just thinking about in the final days of post. Yeah, and the two ways we thought about music was sort of this man-made industrial landscape that was um, machine-driven, so thinking about how to draw upon those mechanical sounds, and then whistles and human sounds to be into these, when she starts going into daydreams, the soundscape changes a little bit to where it's less mechanical and more human. No, I, I totally got that. That's really, really amazing. I think it also, along with the text and the imagery and the editing, you know, in, in setting up this whole world um, of that tension that you mentioned as the narrator, the tension between like this really fierce loyalty to a place and the communities that are there, but then also reality is on the other side of that tension, economic reality, environmental reality, and, and so forth. And I felt like all of the parts of the film were working to, to really emphasize that tension uh, between the two. I don't know if you want to speak something about that. Yeah, I mean, we kind of wanted to be ambiguous about, you know, I think people come in hearing King Cole, they expect maybe interviews or they expect an anti or a pro take either way. And this film is ambiguous in, in the sense that it holds that tension. Um, and that was the challenge of the voiceover narration. There's, there was versions of writing this narration where it was way more condemning Right? And then there were moments where it was way too romantic. And so it was about balancing those and not pretending this is objective, because it's not, it's my memories, and it's um, very much affected by that. But for me, that's what the whole film was all about. And that's the whole reason I wanted to make this film is I've lived and worked in this region, and people have asked me to make films about coal, but they've never allowed me to tell the story of the psychology and the psyche and the identity. It's always been about black lung or environment or politics. Those are all important things, but they're also already talking points. And I was like, this is something we're not talking about, which is why it's actually so difficult to move on is this embeddedness in the culture. And so it was just something that 
I kind of had to come to terms with, with grieving and mourning within my own family, seeing how they were processing it or not processing it and how the film could be a way to help us process it, which is obviously the final scene um, where we just invited 70 people to bring their own eulogies. We didn't know what they were going to say to the top of the hill that day. And, you know, Heather Hanna, who delivered that incredible eulogy at the end, we we had three cameras rolling once they started walking up the hill. We didn't stop recording. We didn't direct or anything. We're just like, what they say is what they say. What they do is what they do. The ballad was written in advance, but it was the only thing. And she delivered to the end of the film. And it was this incredible moment where she also understood that tension. And it was not a new question. The people that are standing on top of that hill were asking that day. They've been asking it for a long time. Like, how do we say goodbye? How do we welcome a new story? Well, we first have to say goodbye to the old one. And Heather just, I was crying when she was delivering her eulogy because she's, you know, she's talking about now they've come to mind the magic, mind, mind the memories. Oh, yeah, I was going to ask about that. That was, I mean, I very intense. I didn't write that. She yeah. wrote that 10 minutes before we walked up the hill, and I had never met her before that day. Huh. Wow. What a great thing to capture. Yeah. And she also said that, that the coal itself is innocent, right? And it's, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a neutral thing. not a villain or savior. Thing, right? And it's how, how we use it <laughs> or don't, right? Um, that becomes part of it. Yeah, I, I was very much moved by that. And then, of course, it tied in with the drums and, and the singing. And you did get back to the old-timey stuff, too, which is great. But also, looking back to the older generations for the stories, for the uh, old techniques of, of doing things, that's really was pretty important to me, too, um, in watching that. Connected to the ambiguity part of it, I also, and again, this tension back and forth, um, I, I started to think a lot about almost like a mythological way of understanding it. And I know that can be a loaded, a loaded word. And also it can have several meanings, right? And I think you were tapping into both the mythology, the ritual, the magic of the place, places, but also the myths that were around them, the myths around the promise of jobs, uh, and then the money flows out and doesn't stay in, and then there's economic and environmental damage in its wake. All those things sort of came through, but I also started to think about, like, literally, like, mythology. <laughs> you know, like Orpheus going down under, under, in the underworld. And so there's this combination of being above ground and below ground. And I think that your characters in the film are, are jumping back and forth. I mean, uh, the girl with, with the snow globe. <laughs> and that, uh, today I just realized that she was sitting in front of a mural that was going into a mine, right? Uh, and so it, it, just, it just so felt that way of, of moving back and forth between the worlds, of being uh, the owls that can do that. And I thought about Ohio, too. You know, I've done a lot of work in Appalachian, Ohio. And first of all, the people that live there are very much aware of that tension and hold, holding that tension, both the beauty and recovery of the place, but also, you know, the environmental and economic damage that have, has taken place there. Gosh, I don't know where I'm going with this. I watched a lot of fairy tales. Oh yeah, in making so, the film. I mean, it, it totally so felt the myth, like it. The right? myths and the fables, and yeah. I watched a lot of not documentaries in making this documentary. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that felt important to me. It was also important that we not clutter the film with location markers to tell you everywhere you were going, but to mm -hmm. really try to paint this picture of this kingdom because. 
you know, I'm from West Virginia, and I think West Virginia is often singled out as like the place that this is all going down, but it's a regional crisis. It's a regional issue, and some places are doing better than others, and certainly my state is a mono economy more than other states that have pillar cities and pillar industries outside of coal. But I really wanted to translate that kingdomness um, and the grandness and and the magic of the fact that, you know, this is a dirty fossil fuel that we're moving away from, but it once was trees, and that we are just a microspec, we're just a tiny part of this story, and who knows what's to come next? It's yeah. not all about us, right? And giving the land, putting the land back front and center in a way that sort of dethrones the king a little bit, puts him back in the place with the sandstone, the limestone, all the other things, to think about, you know, at one time this was just a... a, a a rock on the side of the riverbank, right? And it changed everything. It re renamed it after everything and it changed the world. It fueled the Industrial Revolution, all these things we know. But there came a time when that myth no longer, or that story did become a myth and no longer became helpful. And then now the story is one where I think it actually steals people's agency and it steals their imagination, it steals their sense mm -hmm. of resilience of figuring out how to rebuild their lives because we are told we are nothing without that. And that's a political move for that is, you know, depopulating my state. And so I just really hope that the film could remind us of all the incredible treasures that are around us and include each other and all the knowledge that we have. Mm -hmm. So there was this like, very mythic element of coal that usually we just see it as a dirty thing that we wanted to bring into this. Right, I, that's amazing to hear about that. The people holding on holding on to things might be preventing them from creating new ways of, of um, figuring out how to, to deal with it. But yeah. also like the history is important for our future. Yes, yeah. Right, so it's not a, we're not advocating that this be thrown away, you know, mm -hmm. but it actually informed the decisions we make moving forward. Yeah, yeah, uh, it, it, it reminds me, and again, the underground piece of it too. In Ohio, in a small town called New Straitsville, there's a small cave and that's actually where different groups of laborers, uh, mining miners in the 1880s got together and actually formed the United Mine Workers there, right? Which is so interesting. And so like the underground space is like a place where they could whisper to one another and not be overheard by the companies. But at the same time, that space was also a place where another unidentified group came in to conspire to set the mines on fire. Do you see what I mean? Maybe as a protest in the labor dispute. And some of those fires might still be burning today, all those years later. And so it's holding, again, both of those things together. And that myths can go both ways, right? They can, they can move positively and negatively at the same time. Um, it's, it's just so fascinating to, to see that play out here as well. And then one last thing I wanted to, you've touched on it already, but, you know, the, the funeral is amazing. But, but sort of just before the funeral and then the, the sort of coda at the end, you are asking the question, you know, what's going to happen after the king is gone? And that's a kind of like um, looking like a vision into the future and trying to imagine and speculate in, in good ways what, what might replace um, coal. And, and I think that you move towards answering that in a lot of different ways by thinking about traditional rituals and values. The dancing was really interesting <laughs> throughout the film as a, as a sort of physical manifestation of trying to figure out a new way to be. I don't know, I, I wondered if you had more thoughts about that. 
Well, yeah, we didn't want the film to feel prescriptive, so the end of the film would show you solar panels and windmills, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> because that was felt like that would be um, that would be sort of cheapening the intensity of this change that we are going through right now. Um, and so dance is this metaphor for freedom, right? And it's this self, she's inventing it as she's dancing, she's combining new with old. And one note about that is Lainey and Gabby, they're both, um, Lainey's the redhead and Gabby's the um, black girl and we both, we casted them at dance studios in West Virginia. And so they're non-actors, their scenes are real, they weren't told what to say. They came up with everything they said, and we just gave them situations to be in, and that felt really important when thinking about the future, because if you don't want to just prescribe, you know, I don't have the solutions. I'm just a storyteller, and so in many ways, this film is, I hope, sort of balm for people, is healing, so that's starting a conversation, but it's cathartic in some way. Somebody else who has the policy solutions can see this film and move it towards audiences in a different way. But those girls, to me, you know, Lainey in some ways represents, she's sort of a stand-in for me and some of my memories. And then Gabby represents this desire to leave and the, having big dreams. And that's just who they are as kids. And when, when we decided that this film was more about asking questions about the future rather than proposing solutions, it felt really important to have kids and their uncertainty and them coming to age also in the film as the region's coming of age. And also, the filmmaking itself, we decided if you wanna tell a new story about the region, and you know what people think about it already, you know what stereotypes they're bringing to it, you need to tell it in a new way. And in that way, hopefully modeling the risk and vulnerability that change is inevitable. The documentary form itself is changing, right? And so we wanted the film itself to model this not knowing and that was the whole process of making. This whole film was found in the edit. There was no script beforehand, right? It was reacting to what was going on. So future, I'm optimistic, but I also know change takes a lot of time. And so I, I'm hopeful that this film will remind people, like I said, not of just old things, but of new things that we can be open to. Um, so yeah. Yeah, thank you, that's great. I see Chris over here, and I think he's going to open up the floor to questions if you have any. Thank you. Uh, my name is Jeffrey. I'm a faculty member here. I'm a natural resource sociologist. I'm a huge fan of your first, first film, Hollow. have subjected hundreds, if not thousands, of students to your, to your film. <laughs> I've often thought how cool it'd be to bring you here to OSU, maybe show your film at the wax and have a Q&A afterwards, so that's really cool. Really recommend that movie to any to anyone here that enjoyed this. It's it's similar in a lot of ways. And I was just curious, like, what is the relationship between Hollow and uh, King Cole? And if there is a relationship, I'm sure there must be. And if you could just talk a little bit about that, thank you. Yeah, that's a great question. So Hollow is an interactive documentary. It's like a choose-your-own-adventure film. Um, it's got three and a half hours of content. Five, split into five chapters around different themes. It's, you can visit hollowdocumentary.com and see it on a browser, not on mobile, because we built it before mobile exploded. <laughs> um, but the difference between Hollow and King Cole, for me, was Hollow, they're both really collaborative films. So Hollow I, I was participatory film. So I trained young people and elders to shoot their 
their lives and film their own communities. And so that's a big part of what made that collaborative. Also the archives section was super collaborative. People would come in on Saturdays in the high school that we were at and we'd scan in the archives and do a lot of oral history and all these things. But I was, I made that 10 years ago. So 2012, I was 26 and I was living in Boston. I was homesick for West Virginia and felt really misunderstood where I was living in Boston and really just felt like I had a chip on my shoulder about like, I have to show people that this place, that this place is full of people who are trying, that this isn't the end of the story. So in many ways it's picking up that narrative of trying to say like, what is next for this? But now 10 years later, I have a lot of opinions. <laughs> and that's, I think that's the biggest difference is I, um, felt like it was really important as much as I resisted being the narrator until the very end. I was not gonna be the narrator of the film. I was convinced Heather would be once I met her because she's incredible. But it was weird with someone else having my words in their mouth talking about my grandpa and my dad. It's like you really gotta stand behind your own words. You gotta like be brave in this way. And I think that's the biggest difference is I learned so much from the people in that collaborative project of making Hollow that over the past 10 years I've come to my own conclusions about um, maybe as an insider, outsider, because I live in Knoxville, Tennessee now, I'm able to have a little distance to say things that people that are so inside aren't really allowed to say. Um, and even pe giving people permission to say those things in a way, and it was all about tone for this film. It was finding the tones, like when your great aunt tells you the truth, but she tells you in the most loving way that you can't, like you can't be upset. You're like, she's right, right? That's like the tone of, of trying to find it where you have to be, on, we have to be honest about this because we're dying. This, this, is, this is a time capsule with no living air, breath, culture in it. We have to evolve in some way, but we have to do it in a way that's respectful to one another. And so I think that that's the difference is that I finally, I, the people that led me on this path of documenting for the past 10 years gave me the vulnerability and the bravery to put myself in the position that had been I had been asking people to put themselves in for the past 10 years. And while I had appreciated people's level of commitment and vulnerability to giving me their stories for the screen, I didn't realize how scary it was until it was me actually authoring it. So that feels like the biggest transition to me. And we're also in a different place 10 years from now. I mean, politically, it's like there's a lot of things that have changed. So I'm glad you still show the film, though. It's in the West Virginia University Library's archives. So I really hope with everything going on there that it stays there. <laughs> um, so visit it so they see traffic, so they want to keep it going. <laughs> I, did, I did notice about um, your narration, which I, of course, was watching. I was trying to figure out if that was you or not. Yeah. And then at the very end, in the credits, it's buried way toward the end. It I was know. really a modest. I uh, really for don't want to be the narrator. It's really interesting. Yeah, <laughs> it confuses people. Oh, it's good. Yeah. yeah. I'd rather have it without the mic. Oh, okay. if I could. Um, I'm John Davis. I'm also active over here. Um, I was born in Knoxville, grew up in Mercer County, West Virginia. So a lot of people in the Rowe County, my parents were buried on the hillside in, in um, Rowe County. So thank you for the film. Um, I guess the, the, and I really appreciate your gesture to, uh, to kind of make something about this subject 
that somehow resonates differently. And I think that was really successful in a way. But being a political animal myself, I mean, I, I guess I wanted to ask you about that last line, or about that, that, that moment of fuel, right, where she talks about Hungary's dream, she mentioned already, Brian. And um, I mean, has that, yeah, is there a danger in sort of remythologizing that in, in your project or something like this? I mean, how does that, how do we, how do we push this beyond this sort of romantic moment? Because, I mean, there are a lot of people you have to just shake, right, <laughs> at this point. Like, yeah. Yeah, um, I think it kind of depends on where you're sitting when you're watching the film. If you've already been sort of shaken out of it and you're moved on, then it may not feel like you're being shaken enough. But if you haven't been shaken, this film will shake you. So I think I, I saw that when we screened the film to 400 people in Charleston, West Virginia. It was a very different experience than like a New York or LA screening, right? Like just cathartic. I mean, people just being like, yep, like, this is it. Like, it's all out in the open now. We can talk about it. And that may seem too gentle for some people, um, but that's just sort of the, uh, that's the way that I've been led to educating new thoughts in my, my own life and um, not resisting change was when I felt brought along. And so that was important to me. And you know the girls' um, parents, and they weren't involved just because they were. It was just the girls. I mean, they very much are living their own lives that are in this sort of post-coal context. And Lainey's dad was one of the people I was the most scared to show the film to because he still he actually operates a huge strip mine in uh, Kentucky. Um, that is, it's not an active mine. He actually has like solar tree projects, a bunch of different things on there, but he still has mining. There's still mining coal on the land. And I was most nervous to show him because he's a very, you know, tough coal miner dude, never gonna, never gonna cry, never gonna like show his soft side. And he just wept after he saw this film um, and said, you told the truth. And that was all he could say. Um, so I think it kind of depends on how close you are to that line of reality and how much you haven't been allowing yourself. I mean, my own dad, who worked in the coal industry for 40 years, had to see the film three times before he could look at me and say, I didn't realize how much I was romanticizing my own career, right? And like, that may feel like a slow process, but I do think that, that we have to make space for that. And it also was ironic making this film during the time where coal prices were four times higher than they had ever been. So we're like, King Cole's a ghost. <laughs> like, well, according to metallurgical coal, he's doing pretty dang on good, right? Um, and so that was also a question is like, do we look like dummies saying this is declining when the rest of the world is, is also in the belief, you know? So the industry, the beliefs of the industry, the employment numbers of the industry, all these things are, are so much smaller than they ever were, right? And so that's the conversation we're having about community. So it's a great question, though. Um, I appreciate it. We're doing a screening in Mercer County at, uh, in Bluefield mm -hmm. at the Granada on the 21st of September. So you should tell them. Tell your people. 
Hey, I'm Nick Booker. I'm a PhD student in ethnomusicology here at OSU. And um, so I do a lot of work with communities in an ethnographic um, sort of way. And I always have an elevator pitch um, sort of ready to describe the work that I'm doing. Um, and I find that, strangely, that, that sort of explanation of the work that I'm doing tends to sort of haunt me when I get back to my apartment or you know the university library or whatever. I'm constantly thinking about what I told people I was doing and then what I ended up doing with the writing that I do afterwards. And so I just wonder sort of how you described the work that you were doing at, you know, coal festivals and beauty pageants and, and all of these sorts of spaces, and then how you thought about your responsibility to that narrative when you were going through the editing and post-production process. Yeah, that's a great question, because we didn't know what we were doing. We, we didn't know what the film was. I mean, this I've never made a film like this before, so everything was unknown and um, I didn't know what the narration was going to say when I was filming the pageant you know I didn't know have a clue what how things would be contextualized so we stuck we stuck with saying it was a film about culture and so um, we wanted to observe the rituals the daily life um, the the things that people do that gather around coal and so um, you know there are certainly people that didn't want to be filmed and um, there are others that I think, Saul, I, th I think there's an element of this that maybe is lost on some audiences if they're not from the coal fields that not all these things are taken super seriously. They're performative in some way. They're performing a, a, a version of life, right? And then, you know, half of the coal pageant girls told me off camera, they're like, I had to Google coal. Like, I didn't even know what it was used for, right? <laughs> and then, like, you know, there's, there's a couple that have, like, memorized their speeches. So, like, that's part of it, too, is the performative. They're performing, too, right? Um, and so, and that's fake coal dust that's being thrown on them. That's black cornstarch. So I guess what I would say is that, like, there's an element of this that it's easy to look at those things and maybe think, like, whoa, they're really stuck in the past, but, and maybe that's a failure of the film to not figure out how to really translate that subtext, but it's really hard to, actually, to both, like, have the ir ironic elements of it and also the very serious, this is a very serious topic of people's, like, ability to survive, our ability to survive as a planet. Um, so, yeah, we always just said it's a film about culture um, and observing rituals and... And it also helps, I've been making films there for a while, so a lot of people they had seen me running around with a camera over the past 10 years, and so I wasn't a total stranger. And the tattoo artist, he's actually in Hollow. We, he's one of the people, um, and so we asked him, it was like, next time you get a cold tattoo request, give us a call. So we had trust built. Um, that really helped in that process. And in the edit, it, was, it did make me nervous, um, because when the film started taking this very personal and... Um, at times critical route, I wondered how people would feel with that right next to their story. But at the end of the day, it's like this was a story that I felt very much I needed to tell, and I, I hoped that they would trust me in that process, and I haven't had any negative feedback from anyone in the film yet. It's actually being shown at, at the King Cole Festival oh, in a couple of weeks, yeah. which I'm not. I'm not going to be able to be there. I have to. I'm, I go to a um, screening in Nashville. It's next Friday, and I would love to. I have no clue. But I think that's going to be incredible at the same festival where they throw the coal dust on you. So that will be a cool audience to know how they respond to it. 
Hello, um, my name is Kat Fenneran. I'm an energy geographer. I'm from an oil community in Northwest Ohio, um, and I've spent my master's studying Appalachian coal transitions in Ohio. Um, I love the eulogy of it all. I think my question is, is this King Coal, but in the spirit of what these communities transition towards, be that fracked natural gas, um, petrochemicals, in the spirit of the king is dead, long live the king. I'm curious what sort of, if, if there is a, a warning to crown a new king embedded in this at some level. Natural gas is, is interesting because, you know, no one's touching, like, monuments to it. No one, like, they don't need natural gas. And from my observations in my home state is they come and tear up the land through a strip and put the pipeline in for a couple months and they're gone. They're not building coal towns. They're not building schools. So it, coal is like a completely different beast in the sense that, you know, the model for the coal town and, and King Coal himself, this, this whole mythology of King Coal created through nursery rhymes and things, this is started in the UK. This wasn't an American concept. And so that was started there, brought over here, huge like industrialists obviously like Henry Ford Ford owned mines um, Andrew Carnegie owned mines and then they owned everything in between to make all the money right so now like we're in a different situation where I and there was a moment when we were making the film I was like do we need to address natural gas because that's been the the killer of the king right from a from a uh, power perspective um, but one of my friends who's he writes for Politico, he's like, you know, no one's crowning Miss Butane. No one's like, it's not, you're not making a film about that. And you have to be okay to leave that conversation to the experts. You're making a film about the sense of identity and why that is holding us up in some way. So it's, a t it's tough to like be able to incorporate all the ways in which this is working um, in the energy sector as well. I mean, in a lot of the mine that, or a lot of the coal that's mostly being mined in West Virginia to this day is, is actually not thermal coal for power generation. It's metallurgical coal for steel. So we're not, we're actually like not having the same conversation when we talk about power generation always as we are steel, which doesn't matter. But I don't think a lot of people really actually understand um, some of the uses for that. So it's a great question, and I the only answer I had was the one my friend who writes for Politico, he's like, you have to sort of free yourself from having to explain everything. And But yeah, I just don't see, I see natural gas as, as more of a ghost than King Cole, right? In and out, right? There's gone, like there's campers on the side of the road one day, they're drilling, they're going through and it's gone. And it's it's actually in some ways, you know, even sadder to think of the destruction because we don't <laughs> we don't even get the benefit like in the in the worst way at least we had were able to burn the coal to heat our homes when we mined it it's terrible for the environment but at least it was local in that way natural gas is like pipeline out th right through us and we're not seeing any of it and the people's water and land and everything's being affected by it so it's a different beast and a different time in the sort of industrial age so you know more than I do. I don't have a good answer, I'm sure. So we've got lots of hands, and I think only time for a couple more questions. So we can try to get to a few more here. Thank you. Hi, my name is Jennifer. Back in 2008, I was working on my master's degree 
um, at Appalachian State University in Appalachian Studies. I did an internship at Cold River Mountain Watch, an organization in Whitesville. And I became impressed by all the activism of the women. The women just amazed me. Um, and I ended up doing my research for my thesis on the women, the intersection of their activism and, and, and gender construction. And they've influenced me so much in, in my research. I wonder, especially where women are concerned, who has influenced you? There's a lot of women in this film for a reason. Um, and I, you know, I don't want to say women have a stereotype, but I don't want to fall into stereotypes and say women are the ones to sort of lead and guide in this healing way. But in my community, it's been true. In my family, it's been true. And so when it came time to featuring people that I felt were leading the way, I often looked to women that were doing work that was non-traditional, that was overlooked. Um, you know, the men, and by the way, women worked in the mines too. It was a big boom in the 70s. Very few now in the mines, but men get all the attention and valor for, like soldiers, right, for mining coal, whereas women were doing the hard work of actually keeping their families alive. And so, yeah, I... I was talking to someone earlier, like poets like Louise McNeil, who I was reading her work when I was writing this narration, the Poet Laureate, and our Poet Laureate Muriel, what's Muriel's last name? Forgetting her last name. It's terrible. Who didn't even have a formal education and became West Virginia's Poet Laureate. So I think that leadership is something that my mom wrote the lines actually just over coffee one morning I was like okay mom like I know King Cole's not real just go with me on this like what is he what what is this entity she's like well he's not dead but he's not what he used to be so I guess he's a ghost and I was like those that that's what he is so the film became a ghost story and so the, the women in my family have have been the leaders even though the men get the attention yeah I think we have two more here Thank you. I'm John. I'm a filmmaker from Alaska. Nice to see you, Elaine. John, I know you. I, uh, I'm a new parent, like you are, and uh, I just wanted to build on what Brian was talking about of the future, and this is of the work that you've done the most personal, I think. And I'm just curious, being not only a, a new parent, but also an expectant parent, how are you internalizing this future that you really left us with, the end of the story, the eulogy after you know King Cole's funeral. And I'm just curious for you personally, as a mother, what does that look like for your, your story and, and your children in particular, especially being so closely connected to this intersection of energy and also you know, destruction? I have a terrible story to tell that I'm going to regret telling you guys, but when my two-year-old was born two years ago, I was very emotional because everyone in my family has been born in West Virginia, and before it was West Virginia Virginia for nine generations, and he was born in Knoxville, Tennessee. And I felt like I had severed him from some story that was actually really important to me. 
and I said something to my partner like, "Oh, he he won't mind coal." And <laughs> my partner was like, "Thank God! <laughs> like, why why would you say that?" Like, and I'm like, "Yeah, I know it sounds stupid, but it is. There is this. There's this ridiculously when you when you have so little." And this is the one thing that people were like, we need, and now we no longer need it, now we no longer want it, that change happened. It is like something weird inside you. And so that was good for me to come to terms with having a kid. It was really good for me to come to have to terms with making this film because it's like I'm making this as a record of not just your family but this place that I've taken you out of because I don't know what your future is at that moment there and I wanted to raise you someplace that I felt had more opportunities for you and that's a very conflicting feeling for me and so I think being really honest and like just saying that I've been silenced and I'm learning I'm like I'm still learning to be quiet because clearly I'm not being quiet I'm talking to you guys right now was a really important thing for me to communicate to whatever the next generation is feeling so I I think that the film, in many ways, ha having a kid during the process of filming clarified that tension that you brought up and the importance of not just telling the good or the bad, but actually trying to give something that was much more complicated in the mix. Hello, my name is Aiden, and I'm a first year at, here at OSU. What aspect of your career do you wish aspiring filmmakers would ask you about more? and why and also if possible me and my friend have like way more questions to ask you so like after but thank you that's funny uh what do i wish he'd asked me more about i well i teach at the university of tennessee and i see a hesitancy i see an ex expectation i probably had this too to make something really great really early and I made a lot of crap for a long time that no one really saw. Before I made Hollow, I had been making documentaries that no one should ever see <laughs> for like six years, right? And Hollow was like the first project that people really know me by, thank goodness, because those other ones are real bad. Um, but I think that that's what's really important is to figure out, to make mistakes, to figure out how to navigate ethics and community and trust and the importance of understanding time and not to rush. And that's so valuable in documentary that there's nothing more, no amount of money can buy you enough time with the people that you're, and the stories that you're thinking about. And even when you finish the film, I guess what I'd wanna say is you're always get on the other side of it and think of things like tonight you could have done differently or you could have said differently. And What's important is to just be okay with that, that this film ended and that it did what it did in, in the moment of your life. And then you take that knowledge and those questions to the next question, to the next film. So that's probably what I would say, is make the mistakes and move on and keep making. Um, but don't forget what you've learned and don't make the same mistakes three or four times. That's a, a, that's a fantastic answer, by the way. It's really good. <laughs> Because there's a lot of freedom in, in uh, making mistakes, yeah, especially early on. So maybe we can wrap up. Elaine, I know there might be a chance for folks to see the film next year. Like, how can people spread the word about the movie or see it again? Or Yeah, 
So this film doesn't have a distributor. We're independently doing screenings at theaters all across the um, country right now. So I think there's over 40 theaters now that are screening the film across the country between now and November. So go to our website, kingcolefilm.com slash screenings and send them to send the list to the people all around the country where they can see it. It'll do festivals still till November as well. And then I think we will do a small streaming window in November. Um, so if you want to know when that will happen, follow us on Instagram, King Cole Film, or follow our website. And then it will broadcast on um, PBS POV next July or August. That hasn't been announced yet, so that's just knowledge for your <laughs> brains, not for Twitter. To log that away. So yeah, it's important that people get together and see this film, though, because um, we did make this for a communal space and for a theater. So thank you for having this wonderful space here for us to gather. And it sounded, from what I heard, it sounded really good in here. So I'm sure it looked good too. So thank you, Chris. Yeah, thanks to all of you for coming out. And once again, thanks to Brian and Elaine. That was filmmaker Elaine McMillian Sheldon speaking with composer Brian Harnetti. You can learn more about King Cole at kingcolefilm.com. And for more information about film video programming at the WEX, go to wexarts.org. For the Wexner Center for the Arts, I'm Melissa Starker. Thanks for listening.